We are working our way through um, the New Testament book of Galatians. Today we're in chapter 2, the first 10 verses. But I want to begin today by calling your attention to the most, what I think is the most important verse in this passage, which is verse 5, and it reads like this. But we refuse to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. If you don't know anything else about the background of that statement, two things would be apparent without any further information. One is the Apostle Paul has a backbone. He was in a battle with somebody over the gospel. And he would not give in under any circumstances. For the moment, we don't need to know who Paul was in a battle with. The major fact is that he would not give in. He wasn't going to give in an inch. He wasn't going to give in for one moment. Secondly, where the gospel is concerned, Paul was not going to compromise. He wasn't, uh, this wasn't a personal issue with him. Uh, it wasn't a matter of personal honor, not a matter of purely personal opinion. For Paul, the gospel was the most important thing in the world. He knew that if he gave in to a group of false teachers, it was going to hurt these new believers in Galatia. Many years ago, someone made an astute comment to me that applies to all of life, and I know you've heard it. Not every hill is worth dying on. You heard that statement? Sometimes I've noticed that people decide to fight for a hill that really isn't worth defending. I try to encourage pastors with this all the time. One of the keys to successful ministry is knowing which hills really matter. You can give up a lot of territory and still win if you know which hill to fight for. That's a good military strategy, but it's also a good advice for every part of our life. Not all hills are equal. Some are larger, some are more strategic. Make sure you pick the right hill to fight on, and when you, and when you find the right hill, stand and fight with all you've got. Now, if you want the meaning of this passage from Galatians 2, here it is. For Paul, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation, was a hill to fight for and to die on. He would gladly give up ground on lesser matters, but on the gospel message itself, he was not going to give an inch. The background of this text is very simple. Paul had established churches in the Gentile region of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. After he left, some false teachers who claimed to be from Jerusalem came to Galatia and began undermining all that Paul had worked for. They confused these new Gentile Christians by attacking Paul's apostleship and also by telling these Galatians that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now when Paul heard that the Galatians were being swayed by these false teachers, he sat down and he wrote this passionate emergency letter to the Galatians. In his mind, this was a hill to die on. Our text tells of a visit by Paul and Barnabas and Titus uh, to Jerusalem to meet privately with James, Peter, and John, the top three apostles. And after some discussion, the Jerusalem apostles affirmed that Paul was indeed preaching the truth of the gospel and that Titus, who was a Greek convert, did not need to be circumcised. This was a huge victory for the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of the Old Testament law. 
Now in verse four, Paul says that the problem was caused by certain false teachers who had infiltrated the church with the goal of destroying Christian freedom and trying to lead the church back into the slavery of living by the rules of the Old Testament times. These are the people that Paul was referring to when he said we won't give in for a moment. The whole debate came down to this. Do you have to be circumcised to be a Christ follower? Part of our problem with this passage um, is that this isn't a hot controversy in the church today. In the first century, this was the number one issue the church faced as it was moving, uh, expanding out of Judaism into the Gentile world. And we have a hard time understanding this issue because we simply don't talk about this topic in the same terms. I've been a pastor for over 35 years, and in that time I've been asked thousands of questions, but not once has anyone ever come up to me and asked if circumcision was necessary for their salvation. For Christ followers, it may be a discussion uh, point that we have now in the healthcare world, but not very often in the church world. Here are a series of statements that I hope will help us understand why this issue was so controversial in the first century church. Circumcision was commanded by God in the Old Testament. It was the mark of holiness that set all Jewish males apart as holy unto the Lord. It was the mark of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. It was the beginning point of keeping God's law. It was the physical sign that a man belonged to God, body, soul, and spirit, and it was to be a reminder to a Jewish male that in his most personal and intimate moments, he was not his own. He was bought with a price, and that he needed to glorify God in all that he did. Now, Paul's attitude is clearly stated later in the book of Galatians in chapter 6 when he says, As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified. And the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. For Paul, the only thing that mattered was preaching the cross so that sinners would come to know Jesus. If you want to be circumcised, fine. If not, fine too. To make matters even more confusing, though, in Acts chapter 16, we read that Paul encouraged Timothy to be circumcised despite the fact that his father was not a Jew. For Paul, he believed that um, it would give him a better chance to be in ministry to the Jewish people in Lystra and Iconium. So why does Paul make such a big deal about circumcision among the Galatian believers? If in the end, he says, it really doesn't matter one way or the other. Well, the answer, I think, is because these false teachers were trying to make this part of the gospel. They wanted to require circumcision as part or necessary for salvation. And that, according to Paul, was heresy. It was a perversion of the message of God's grace. And Paul says, this is the hill that I will fight on and die on. The rest of the passage is really quite simple. In verse 6, Paul says that he met with Peter and James and John and the leaders of the uh, church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. In other words, they stood on the same ground. In verses 7 through 9, he says, Instead, they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as he had given Peter the responsibility to preach to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews 
also worked through me as the apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me, and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. What Paul's saying here is that we preach the same message. We share the same fellowship. It's based on the recognition of the grace of God that was at work in their lives. And at the conclusion of their meeting, the apostles in Jerusalem gave Paul the right hand of fellowship, which basically means they supported him. Paul said, don't let these false teachers bother you too much. Just keep on preaching the gospel. That's the main thing. In verse 10, he says, their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I've always been eager to do. They both had the same compassion for the poor among them. That's really the whole passage in a nutshell. And many of us might read these verses and find them to be ancient religious rigmarole. After all, very few of us worry about circumcision as a condition of our salvation today. It all seems very old-fashioned and very outdated. But underneath this ancient controversy is a truth that I think we need to think about, and it's really a lesson based around the importance of unity in the body of Christ. In this case, Paul is saying that unity is, must be based on truth, especially the truth of the gospel. And where the gospel's at stake, we cannot give in to anyone. We must stand for the gospel, we must preach the gospel, and if necessary, we must fight with those who try to pervert the gospel. Some years ago, it's been quite a few years ago, you may remember there was a controversy around the Pope who went to pray in a Muslim mosque during a trip to Syria. I don't remember a lot about the context of the story, but I'm inclined to think that on one hand, if they went to a mosque and the Pope prayed his prayer and the Muslim cleric prayed his prayer and they both went their separate ways, that probably doesn't amount to much one way or the other. But if the intent was to go into that mosque to say there really isn't much difference between Christianity and Islam, after all, we're praying to the same God, we're, if you think about it, our religions are a lot alike, they're just two paths that lead up the same mountain to God's presence, if that was the purpose, that's an entirely different matter. You see, context always matters a great deal. Without knowing all the details, I can imagine that the Pope did what he simply did as a gesture of goodwill in the hope of diffusing tensions in the Middle East. And certainly diffusing tension is a noble cause, and we, we all join in praying for an end to violence in that troubled region of the world. But the larger question remains unanswered. Why would a Christian leader and a Muslim cleric join in a prayer service? These issues are important because we live in a touchy-feely age that values emotion over reason and tolerance over truth. Our generation is very comfortable with the notion that there is a God who is, is not very comfortable with the notion that there is a God who has spoken and what he has spoken is truth. And we certainly don't like it when someone proclaims that the, uh, the words of Jesus in John 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. That's far too narrow-minded in our culture today and too exclusive for our taste. The only problem is it's in the Bible, and we can't ignore it. Years ago on a local radio show, there was an interview with a certain renowned psychologist who called himself a Jewish atheist. And when he heard that the host 
of the show was an evangelical Christian, he wanted to know if she believed that he was going to hell. And Sandy replied along the lines of, you know, it's not my opinion that counts, it's what God says, but he wouldn't let her off the hook. And he went on to attack her, asking if she believed that in spite of all of his good works, he was going to hell because he didn't believe in Jesus. And that, that's when Sandy quoted John 14, 6. Words that Jesus said, but he asked again, what is it that you believe? I know what the Bible said, says, but do you believe it's true? And finally she said, yes, I do. And he sounded relieved. He said, good. At least you're owning up to what you really believe. And they went on to have a good interview. As I thought about that interview, two things come to mind. First, obviously, that man had heard the gospel many times before. He had understood the truth, even if he chose to reject it. And secondly, he wanted Sandy as a Christian just to own up to her beliefs. And once she did, he had a lot more respect for her. Now, I find that instructive for us to consider. It's okay to tell people the truth. The gospel is good news, but it's not good news for those who are rejecting it. If we choose not to believe in Jesus, the gospel cannot save us. We don't do, uh, we don't do lost people any favors by papering over the hard truth of the gospel, like sin and righteousness and judgment. The gospel is much more than a feel-good message. It's also a very solemn message that Jesus is the way to God, and that in his life and death and resurrection, he has provided for us a way of salvation. Paul says that's the hill. We must not give in to those who would change it or water it down or amend the gospel of God's free grace. Um, in my first message in this series, I commented that no doctrine is more difficult, I think, to accept than this, the doctrine of free grace, that God freely offers us a way of salvation. It tells us that you know, we're in terrible trouble because of our sin. It declares that we are sinful and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, but God has done something about our condition. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept the law, who lived a sinless life, who was convicted of crimes he didn't commit, who died on the cross taking our sin, dying in our place, bearing our load, standing in our stead, the just dying for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. On the third day, he rose from the dead, he later ascended into heaven, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and one day he will return to earth to set up his kingdom. See, God's grace is centered in the objective, historical reality of what Jesus accomplished when he came to earth. Grace forces us to humble ourselves and to admit that there is no amount of moral reformation that can save us. There's no religious rituals that can wash away our sin, no works of any kind that can add value to the finished work of Christ. The question comes down to this, are we made right with God by what we do or is it by what Jesus has already done for us? And it's very hard for us to admit that we're in such bad shape that only God can rescue us, but that is what grace is all about. Let me expand uh, quickly on uh, what I said earlier about unity. Unity is based on the truth of the gospel of God's free grace. Where that truth is denied, there can be no unity. And I draw two conclusions from this. First of all, unity does matter. 
And because it matters, we need to stand for the truth of the gospel. This comes from verses 1 through 5 of our text. Paul would not give in to the Judaizers, not for a moment, in order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Why? For the Gentile believers. And I'm glad he didn't compromise because most of us are Gentiles. And we would not have the gospel today had Paul given in. Where the gospel is preached, secondly, we have the basis for true Christian unity, even when we differ on some lesser issues. This comes from verses 6 through 10, where Paul keeps repeating the basic unity that exists between him and the Jerusalem apostles, that even though Peter preached to the Jews and he preached to the Gentiles, there was a unity and a fellowship between the two. Certainly, we need that emphasis today. Over the years, God has expanded my own horizons in this area. I have discovered that God has people scattered all over the world in some very unusual places. And I've learned that there are many different ways to worship God in spirit and in truth. Soon some of our congregation will find out what it's like to worship with Haitian believers. Some of you have already discovered what it's like to worship with Christians in other parts of the world. Um, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 uh, says, for I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The last phrase introduces the universal dimension of the gospel. The Jews were God's chosen people, although uh, many of those Jews be, uh, did not become followers of Jesus. The gospel, Paul says, still has the power to save. And the Greeks, who were the uh, first Gentiles, uh, non-Jews, no, uh, no wonder Paul was not ashamed. The gospel had, to say, had the power to save all people without, regardless, or without regard to the distinctions that often divide us. It had the power to save without regard to race, education, age, income, skin color, family background, religious preference, anything. And that truth was driven home to me if, uh, several years ago. I had the opportunity to worship with believers from around the world at a couple of churches in South Korea. And it was very ecumenical. When the time came to sing and to pray, we stood and we joined our voices in many different languages. And it was really an amazing moment from people from many different countries and backgrounds all singing and praying together. And though I couldn't understand all the languages, I knew exactly what was being communicated. It was a demonstration of the universal power of the gospel to reach across barriers of race, and language and culture and geography. And what I learned from that was that when you stand firm in the gospel, it actually gives you a firm foundation for a broad fellowship in the body of Christ. Sometimes we're tempted to soften the gospel, thinking that that is what broadens our fellowship, but the reverse is closer to the truth. When we stand firm in the gospel, we have fellowship with God's people from many different backgrounds. You know, it's a real blessing to me to continue to see how the, God has uh, uh, grown this church and is still growing and uh, still reaching out to people who need Christ, still supporting missionaries, still going, sending people beyond our own local community to bring Christ to people who need to hear. And I'm trusting God to continue to lead us to do great things for the kingdom uh, as we continue to do that, as we continue to mentor pastors and church leaders across our state, I'm encouraged when I think of the great heritage that we are passing down to the next generation that follows us. And with God's help, we will continue to do that. May our unity 
always be evident. May we never be ashamed of the gospel. And may our love for all of God's people, whoever they are, wherever they are, abound more and more in the days ahead. Let's pray. Loving God, we declare that uh, we do want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a church family, we confess that we want to love one another as we love ourselves. As your children, we proclaim that we want to put on Christ. We want to walk in unity and love with one another. And it's because of this love that we show to each other that people will know that we are your disciples. Your word tells us that if we love you, we must love one another. That we should not look out for just our own interests, but we should take the interest of each other's needs. That we live in harmony with each other and resist division. That we be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. That we turn away from evil and do that which is good. That we seek peace and pursue to main- and maintain it. That we encourage and build each other up always. Make it so in each of us. And above all things, help us to put on love that is the bond that unites us. For it is through Jesus Christ our Lord that we pray. Amen.